Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Just wanted 
uh, fancy-schmancy Israeli counter-raids after all the Egyptians raid Israel. Israeli thesis, as we described, particularly what's going on during these years. This just looks like a bigger version of a raid, and the plausible deniability if anything goes wrong. And then, once they land over there, then the, an Israeli armor column under Arab Sharon is supposed to go help them for love and discharge from Israel, from the Negev, all the way across the Sinai Peninsula to catch up with them as soon as possible. Um, and then the joint force together will storm and capture the Mitlapet, and then that will choke off the Egyptian forces that are in the Sinai. And then the Israelis, as you've seen a minute, will launch several prong campaigns, a column up here, and a column here, and a column there, to try to take over whatever military positions are necessary to take over in order to conquer the Sinai Peninsula. What I'm trying to say is you can't physically, the countryside business can't physically occupy every inch, nor is there any reason to, of the Sinai Desert, because there's nothing there. Only that the Egyptian army has certain bases over there, and certain strong points, and places like that, and that's what you want to take over. And if you do that, then you've got the whole business. Recall that part of the plan was that Israel's not going to take over all but rather they're going to go up to 10 miles. So the British and the French are going to say, the two sides should all stay away. Israel should stay 10 miles away from the Suez Canal on this side. The Egyptian army under Nazar should stay away 10 miles here, and the British and French are in the middle. So from the very beginning, Moshe Diane knows, in real reality, we're supposed to take over all of Sinai up to 10 miles before the Suez Canal. Okay, if you follow that, then it's great. Now, um, as I said before, it looks like a, a, a raid. The problem is, that as always happens with the fog of war, there's bad information about the Egyptian positions in the middle of Paris. Um, when they came there, they thought there were no soldiers there, and they found out there were, and then they found out there are a lot of Egyptian soldiers over there, and Ariel Sharon ordered a frontal assault, um, which resulted in heavy casualties for the uh, Israelis, leading to controversy and recrimination. I know that uh, Sharon at this minute is dying. I know you read it in the paper like I read, uh, you know, the, the vegetable thing is falling apart, whatever they call it. And, uh, so therefore, what do the Romans say? The more to us, no, 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 they speak bad about this, uh, the dead, but he, he was, uh, very, uh, the rest of his life. I mean, till today. Their family's very angry at Sharon because they think he incorrectly ordered a frontal assault on the Egyptian positions when he came there, when it wasn't necessary to do so, they could have done other ways. Most of anything here, he like this. You know, in war, the only thing that matters is winning. And so he caught, he captured it, and so I'm not going to do a court martial or anything like that. He was successful in obtaining his mission. Okay. And to be perfectly honest, uh, this is Israel, so you'll understand this very well, especially in an audience like ours. He lost 37 men killed. Now, I'm not saying that's a small number, because every person is a lot. But you understand, it's not a large number of casualties either. And so it's killed. So it's all a matter of relative. In the total signing campaign, Israel lost 230 men. This you should get an idea of what I'm talking about. Total war is 230 men. Which is, uh, if you want to get an idea, they were losing something like that from the, from the Fedayin raids, from the terrorist raids, roughly that number, anyway. So these are how the numbers work. Elsewhere, once that happens, so then, you know, the Israel is basically without declaring it as it work, meaning they're sending their soldiers into the Sinai, and they go through several columns, as I said before, and um, they easily outflank the defeat the Egyptians in a four-day campaign. That's what it's called. It was a four-day business, and uh, which ends the campaign that was October 29th, the 30th, 31st, and November 1st, November 1st, four days before the American election. Okay? So right when all this is happening is right when Eisenhower and Stevenson are going head-to-head in the famous 56th election, and uh, this really muddies up the American political scene because, you know, what is it not going to be part of the election campaign? Don't you think Adlai Stevenson, as eloquent as he was, is not going to say, 
look at the violence that's emerging in the Middle East, this is a sign of the bankruptcy of the Eisenhower administration policy, and if those don't even know what's going on, you don't want a guy who's playing golf and doesn't follow what's, what's happening in the world there, put me in and all the rest of it, and Eisenhower is steaming and all that. Now, the funny thing is, let's take a look at the next map. You can see over here, a little hard for me to see, but it's the Israeli forces moved in, in, in several uh, columns, as you see, totally not about countries that stand in the middle, but uh, taking over the strategic positions in there, and this business took four days. That's what I'm trying to show you. Now, um, it was an unusual strategy, but it worked, and that's all that matters. To be perfectly honest, once Nasser heard that the British and the French, after the first day, are talking about landing, he figured out there's some kind of collusion going on, and he told the Egyptian soldiers, pull out of the side, I can ruin and need you back home. So, and to some degree, to a certain degree, this happened in 67. But I just want you to know, even though we're all proud about Israel's military victories in 1956, 1967, since this is a history, so if you want to be very honest about it, it wasn't really a fight, because on both occasions, in 56 and 67, for different reasons, the Egyptians chose not to make a big battle in the Sinai Desert, but to withdraw. You see? Uh, nevertheless, as I said before, all that matters is what he went. And so, the strategy worked, and as far as Israel is concerned, it was a conquest. Meanwhile, however, the international environment came in. Fighting commenced on Monday afternoon, October 29, 56. Consider that, Monday afternoon. By Tuesday, the UN had met to condemn Israel and to demand a withdrawal. Eisenhower had no idea that an actual invasion was happening. He thought it was a raid. And he wrote a statesmanlike letter to uh, Ben-Gurion, and basically what he said was, you know, and he could smell that, because he had the CIA and the U-2 planes and everything telling him, and he wrote to Ben-Gurion, he said, listen, despite the temporary, present temporary interest that Israel has in common with Britain and France, you ought not to forget that the strength of Israel and her future are bound up with the USA. Okay? So, uh, those active in APAC and all those know exactly what I'm talking about. So, I, I was, 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 was talking topless, as the, as the expression goes. Next day, the, uh, the big one day, the Security Council meets. By then, it's clear that Israel's not raiding, but Israel is invading. As the Security Council votes to order Israel back, Britain and France vote against the resolution, which killed it, because they're one of the five permanent members who had the veto. So, just by voting it, so imagine the shock that hits the world, and Eisenhower and Dulles, when England and France who had told us that we have your data was shuffling the drummers every million and there was going on over here. And then, and, and, and England under Anthony Eden, which hates Israel, said, so oh, the Israel government should not withdraw from the Sinai. All of a sudden it became clear what's happening. Shock. It dawns on Eisenhower that something sneaky is happening. And when Britain and France are right now that they're going to land troops in the canal zone, Ike smelled the rat. Okay? And as I told you before, he wrote to me, the big right now, he says, I don't know what you're thinking, but you do not want to alienate the United States of America. That's a big mistake on your part. Eisenhower is further enraged that the Israelis do this in the last week of a presidential election. A transparently cynical ploy that, let's face it, would be good fodder for an anti-Semite. Frankly, if this happened today, it would be in big trouble. The, you, the, you know, one of the most important things to keep in mind is this is a good old 1950s. And I don't mean Avian Harriet. I mean the good old 1950s when Israel had a monopoly on the American media. There wasn't the thing as a Palestinian voice, or even an Arab voice, of any real proportion in the American media. There was, you know, this is the good old days when there were only three channels, correct? 
It was ABC and CBS and NBC. And they were just starting with the news. And uh, all the reporters, 99% of them, were just naturally, culturally pro-Israel. That's the way it went in those days. I don't have the time, but I could do it on some other case, maybe a little, if, you, if I was doing a media class or something, where you just look at the, you get online, you look at the um, news reports that used to show in the movie theaters, right? You know, the what's happened in the Middle East, and it's so pro-Israel, it's ridiculous, you know. If they don't think Israel, imagine today, today, if Israel invaded the time of oh my goodness, right? At that time, Israeli forces moving to clean out Fetty and Nets, and, you know, and get rid of the terrorists, it's all pro-Israel. So Eisenhower had to operate within this um, environment, and therefore, the New York Times and the others didn't say, this is a shocking violation of American elections, all the rest of it. But it was. It was. And Eisenhower's going to win. <laughs> so, it's not going to be something that they take lightly. That's the point I'm trying to say. Eisenhower and Dulles are further enraged because it is diverting attention from the Soviet crushing of the Hungarian Revolution. The Hungarian Revolution took place November, October 23 to November 10, 56. Exactly during this time. Again, October 23rd to, um, to November 10th. It's exactly that time. And what happened to the Hungarian Revolution? Their Stalin's statue being smashed. Okay? The Hungarians had a huge uprising. They hate the Russians. Who doesn't? And, uh, and they want to kill them all and so forth. By the way, they also want to kill the Jews, so we should know they were very anti-Semitic, anti-Communist revolution, but besides that. And uh, Eisenhower and Dahl were saying, this is great. Now we get to expose the Soviets to what they really are. People around the world, especially in the emerging third world, will not believe all the propaganda that the Russians are the friends of the little man and the small countries. You'll see the fit, and you'll see what it really is, and all the rest of it. All of a sudden, people aren't paying attention to the crushing of the Hungarian revolution. They're saying, oh, Israel and France and Britain are attacking Egypt, which is a leading member of the third world. Look at the destruction, Don't, let's go to the next one, of the Russian tanks in, 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 in uh, Budapest. So, imagine like sending tanks into Baltimore and start blowing things up. That's exactly what happened over there. These are, are captured in a secret uh, uh, film that were the, you know, the Hungarian freedom fighters smuggled out to the West. And uh, you see, oh my goodness, they're shooting over in the parts and all the rest of it. And Eisenhower and Dahl's going crazy. He said, nobody's watching this, they're watching Israel. You see? You're interfering with the plan. First of all, he's doing it without telling me. Second of all, he's doing it the wrong time. He's Lamando. And so, the, it was really bad. The Suez invasion gives the Soviets a chance to act as champions of the third world, especially the Arab and the Muslim world. After all, if you're living in the Middle East, I'll give you an example, North Africa, Arabia, Iran, who's the villain? Khrushchev crushing Hungary? Who ever heard of that? Or Israel crushing Egypt? Everybody heard of that. You see? So they're totally messing up the American propaganda line, which is a fact. Um, on October 30th, if you follow the date, Israel announces right away that it accepts the Anglo-French proposal. <laughs> that was part of the thing. And it will keep its forces away from the canal. Nasser says the opposite. And he calls for military resistance. The British and the French, this is part of the plan, land, armies, forces, they attack and defeat the Egyptians. Okay, so there was bitter fighting. Of course, the British and the French are much better soldiers. There's bitter fighting in, um, in the Suez Canal area in uh, what they call Port Said. Right? There's, there's Ismaili on Port Said. All the, the cities that are located exactly on the, uh, on the Suez Canal area. And as you can imagine, here the British and the French uh, paratroopers uh, jumping out and landing. Do you want to see what happens? You're just looking for it. Say next thing you know, you're being bombarded because they bombed the place first. And then, it's like D-Day. They land uh, paratroopers and then uh, from, from the sea, 
soldiers. It was a realization. Okay? Now the British said, we're only doing this to separate the forces, but there was a transparent lie. And the world could see this, and it smells like a rat. That's the point I'm trying to get at. Um, it's a messy affair. The British thought they'll come in. After all, the Arabs are like nothing. And they'll take over. These were at least British units. And, of course, one, two, three, uh, the British uh, resistance will crumble. And then it will reverberate throughout Egypt. And Nasser uh, will go into panic and he'll leave or get killed or something. It didn't happen like that. It got to be a messy affair. And it did not lead to the fall of Nasser. Not at all. Uh, let's take a look at this. Do you have to show you the uh, you have the audio on this? Well, all right. Well, the point the point of this is that the Egyptian people <laughs> now so refuses to go into hiding. There you go. He determined instead to rally his people after Friday prayers at Cairo's ancient Al Azhar Mosque. He's imitating Churchill. And sure, this is not their finest hour, and it is. And recently, a year or two ago, in Egypt, they made a movie, which I said, that movie, not their 56. He's, he's like God. Because he, he held off, think about it, he held off the British and the French and the damned Israelis and he kept Egypt Smith together and he won at the end. Oh, it's a tremendous victory for him. They see it as a, you have to understand, because Joshi considers one of the high points in history and he was a Churchill. When the country was invaded, he said, hold out to the end and he won. So you have to understand that the whole world doesn't look at it from the Israeli point of view. Uh, meanwhile, though, in Israel, they're elated. Especially Diana Ben-Gurion, but they won a big victory. They're worried all the time that the Israeli army really worth anything and all the rest of it, and they conquered a huge territory. Let's take a look over here. This is the victory parade that Moshe Dayan has uh, in, uh, in the uh, Sinai Desert, and you see the Israeli soldiers, each one's feeling 10 feet tall, and oh, look at Diana, he's standing up again, so, so erect. Of course he's proud, the plan works. And Israel demonstrated that even though they're not a fancy schmancy power, they're able to beat another army and conquer a huge territory and they smash the Egyptians and so on and so forth. So they're not thinking about the international repercussions on that day. They're thinking about the fact that we won, which is totally understandable over here. And Ben Gurion is going crazy all the rest of He's basically drunk with victory. He gives a speech in the Knesset. The Sinai Desert is part of Israeli territory. Ever since the Bible, I find double ML had this and knock on the try. And I mean, you know, you do this. later on the afternoon, how can you say that I was drunk with victory? You know, so I mean, I'll, I'm all in favor of Israeli expansion, but the Sinai Desert had never just, I mean, it is true we spent 40 years there, but not in, but not in that way. You understand? Um, and so, but, uh, you know, oh boy, but going here, I, I couldn't find it online, but there's a famous speech he gave in the Genesis, and, and Sharmal Sheikh, the real name is, uh, you know, uh, some Hebrew name here, and this is a real Hebrew name over here, and the whole business, he, he went off his head. Meanwhile, the, the, uh, Israelis, having taken the Sinai Desert, look what I'm doing. They went around and took the, the Gaza Strip from, from backwards, from Sinai direction, because you couldn't defend it that way. And, uh, and when they come in, um, to put it bluntly, the Shin Bet has a list, and they round up all the Fedayin and they shoot them. Okay? This is, this is what they went in there for. Uh, let's see this. With the 
Ukraine was brought to bear on the Gaza Strip itself. This has always been a thorn in the nation's side. And the trap goes in, the Israel Defense Forces were in high spirits. The years of apprehension were over. And sweet indeed it was to tear down the fortress of Colonel Nasser, issued in vast numbers to fan the flames of Arab nationalism and hatred of Israel and the West.
parliamentary democracy, very sensitive to public opinion, and mass demonstrations spread all over England, especially in London, until the second, in which they go crazy, they say, Anthony, get out of here, you're getting this in the World War III, we're going to destroy the country over some stupid business with the Suez Canal, you know, uh, stop this right away, let's take a look at this. He had the awful realization that he totally misjudged the American aspect of the assessment. Eden's plans are rather fast. He has not anticipated this level of hostility from the Americans, nor from his own people. If you didn't hear me what you said, then you're too stupid to get pregnant. Leader of the Labour Party. Some people, especially the young people, won't believe what they're going to see over here. 
you know, this is a gas station, and I've been in 1956, I've been 23, <laughs> 20, 20, and what else did they do for you? They washed the car. Remember this? They did it. <laughs> okay. They, 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 do, they do the tires. They look under the hood. They have all the three, right? It's all part of the price. Okay? That's, okay, okay, we have gave you this. Now, I told you. Any other comments? No, but seriously, I know where you're all coming from. This is the America of Eisenhower. That's the reason I'm showing you this. Right? Plus, I want everybody to cry a little bit. But this, this is, this is the, the American Idol. This is before the Arabs uh, uh, turned the spigot off. Uh, but at this time, we didn't need the Arabs. Now, Europe, on the other hand, gets its oil from the Middle East. And if the Middle Eastern countries, when they see the invasion by Britain and France, they, they want to... You can turn it off now. <laughs> they, when, when they see this, they want to cut off the oil from Britain and France. And Eisenhower is just telling them, take it easy, don't do this. I'll get them out. Don't cut off the oil. Cool down. We'll make it all work. You know, so on and so forth. If it happened in 1956 that the Arabs cut off the oil, the U.S. will have to supply the oil to Europe. And again, God forbid, can go to 40 cents. Eisenhower will be impeached. You know what I'm saying? He is not in favor of that, of that scenario. You get it? The dullest ever could be could go to 40 cents. It would be a disaster. So, um, to, to be, to, w- without being um, funny about it, uh, it was a real uh, problem. And as the leader of the free world, by the way, Eisenhower is exquisitely sensitive to international economic stability. It's actually very interesting. Eisenhower, the president, was famous for not spending money on the defense. There are many generals and admirals that quit under Eisenhower because they used to be told, you're a general, you spend the money on the army. And he said, as a general, I know how much is wasted, and I know what it hurts to come here. He says, take a look at this. He's very, he was a unique among the presidents. By the time I started president, there is a huge new flow of cash into the head administration. He was the first to acknowledge that a permanent military establishment would be required during this period. But then unless we could find some kind of breakthrough, then in fact it would end up creating a terrible cost. The cost of one modern day mind is a modern brick school in more than 30 cents. The Jewish out of life history tells 60,000 population. This two, five, three, equipped hospitals. We pay for a single fighter fleet with about half a million women a week. We pay for a single destroyer with new homes that could have housed more than 8,000 people. This is not a way of life at all. And that includes them. Under the cloud of threats and war, it is humanity hanging. You, you, get the, you get the impression. I don't do the whole thing. Eisenhower was very sensitive to the balance. Um, he was afraid of what would happen, which did happen, of course, which was what broke out. We're, we're how many trillions in the hole, and we're not getting out of as any way I can see or anybody else can. And in other words, you, you can have the sense of bankrupt yourself. That happened in Russia 20 years ago. And it was, he was terribly afraid. I mean, you have to give him credit. He foresaw this uh, long before it happened. And his last speech, I'm sure you all know, is when he warned against the acquisition of unwarranted influence by the military-industrial complex because it was bankruptcy. You see, and so um, he's, I'm saying this in praise of Eisenhower. Here he is in the Suez crisis, the timing campaign, and he says this can interrupt the international economy, the flow of oil, the price of energy, ruins the country, and you know, uh, and, and, and it's very bad for America, or has the potentiality to be very bad for America. So it's not a joke. 
know, Israel just don't come to unilaterally. England and France just don't come to without thinking about it. I gotta look at the whole picture over here, and I'm responsible because of the largest country for the whole free world, which was not a lie. I'm saying, this is not anti-Semitic. This is not anti-Israel. It's a, it's, it's a real consideration. Um, and so, all I can say is, we have enough hindsight today that to understand, because you have to be objective or try to, uh, at least I think so, that Eisenhower and Dulles worked very hard and successfully to keep the Arabs from doing what they eventually did 17 years later after the Yom Kippur War. Okay, you remember that? When all the, uh, the, 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 the there was the gas orders, as you see over here, and all the, and the cars and everything lined up. That could easily have happened in 1956. And he worked always behind the scenes, that's his style, you know, and always, you know, secretly. And it did not happen. So you have to give credit where credit is due, because he was looking from the American point of view. And by the way, you know, in retrospect, I would not want to think what would have been the reaction of anti-Israel had the gas on the all joking side, had the gas on the 40 cents in the 1950s on some of those big gas dumping cars and everybody would end up blaming on the Jews. That would not have been good, my friend. Now, um, meanwhile, as far as English and the French go, Anthony Eden and Guy Mollet, they say to Eisenhower, you're all wrong. If we don't act like wimps, the Arabs will know their place and they won't dare to embargo us. They're thinking like in the old pre-World War II days, we'll never know if they were right because it's true that the Arabs are scared of a big violence. Who can tell? But with Russia as a factor in now, this is just not realistic. Eisenhower and Dulles say to France and England, you're nuts. That, that is the word they say. You guys are crazy. Meanwhile, as far as little Israel is concerned, they hold on to their conquest, but they look like the aggressor, and Dulles is determined Israel will not get away with it. Um, now comes uh, all the big United Nations votes, and now comes the, 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 the finest hour of Abu Iban, or one of them, because he goes to the United Nations as Israel's ambassador, and he's able to switch to, to as, as long as he could, uh, to turn the issue into one in which Israel's a victim. And he makes the argument to be made, and that is, uh, I'll just read you very briefly over here, I couldn't find it online, surrounded, he says, understand where we're coming from, surrounded by hostile armies on all the land frontiers, subjected to savage and relentless hostility, exposed to penetration raids and assault by day and night, suffering constant toll of life among the citizenry, bombarded by threats of neighboring governments to accomplish its extinction by armed force, overshadowed by a new menace of irresponsible rearmament and battles, blockaded, besieged. Israel alone among the nations faces a battle for security anew with every approaching nightfall and every rising dawn. In recent days, the government of Israel had to face a tormenting question. Do its obligations under the UN Charter require it to resign itself to uninterrupted activity to the south and north and east of armed units practicing open warfare against it and working from their bases in the Sinai Peninsula and elsewhere for the invasion of our homes, our land, and our very lives? Or on the other hand, are we acting legitimately within our inherent right of self-defense when having found no other remedy for two years, we cross the frontier against those who have no scruples in crossing the frontier against us? And he goes on to say, there is aggression, there is belligerency in the Middle East, but we for eight years have been its victims and not its authors. And he goes, I won't read the whole speech, it'll take too long. But, uh, you know, he, he, he was Israel's best uh, uh, speaker, I mean, we all know that. And, uh, and he's able to make an impression in the world. Uh, John Walter Dulles was, uh, went over to him afterwards, just as a professional speaker, one speaker said, he didn't have any notes of something like that. And I'll even show him, he had three lines that he worked out of. And Dulles said, Holy cow, except he didn't say cow. Now, the, uh, 
the, uh, so he, he, he pulls it off. But that's not going to turn everything around, but at least it looked like Israel does not some aggressive. Put a little bit of context on this. We didn't just decide one day to invade the Sinai Peninsula for fun. Uh, there's a background to all of this. Huh? I mean, how would you like it if you were England or America or someone else? If you were raided by terrorists all the time, you and I know what the United States has done ever since 9 11 and with the full support of the American people. And so he said, we've been under this for all the time. Eden and Malay, the prime ministers of, of Britain and France, had figured they could stymie the United Nations through their veto in the Security Council, which is true. However, this opens the door for communists for red volunteers, which was Eisenhower's worst nightmare. So to prevent this, Dulles looked over the rules of the United Nations very closely. He was a famous lawyer, and he found uh, that there was the United Nations General Assembly Resolution Number 377 from November 1950 called the Atkinson Plan. And that means that during the Korean War, uh, Stalin, using his visa, was signing everything in the, in the United Nations, and then Atkinson, who was the Secretary of State on Truman, figured a way to use the General Assembly to do the things that the Security Council is not able to do. And, and Dulles said, let's use that now. And this allows the uh, General Assembly to initiate uh, measures over there. Um, the General Assembly, so in other words, they immediately get the whole General Assembly together, that's all the nations of the world. They uh, vote to order a ceasefire, and you can't veto there. And the sending of the United Nations Army to the Suez Canal area, Eisenhower then threatens Britain and France, behind the scenes as always, that if they do not submit, America will cause a financial panic in their country. In other words, he has a masterful use of soft power. Basically, the United States is probably even in this situation today. Consider those of you who are investors. All America has to say is, you know, if any kind of trouble happens in this, in this country, the United States will not really back their currency. If you had money invested there, what are you immediately going to do? Right? It'll be a crash. Everybody pull the money out. You see? And in the 50s, the gold situation is still under the old um, Bretton Woods agreements. The United States controlled the gold supplies. So if the American bank, the central bank, says, we're not, even if they say it like I'm saying right now, we're not sure if we'll supply the necessary gold for all of us. Anybody's got any money in, in, in Britain, gone. And what does that do? The British economy collapses. And it's like the 1929 crash. Instantly. And Eisenhower didn't have to do a thing. He didn't send any soldiers. He didn't make any speeches. He just said, I'm not sure if we'll be totally able to, and he said it privately. He didn't say publicly. Because if he said publicly, that would cause the crash. And he didn't want to do the crash. You understand? He just wanted to have the effect of being able to force England and France out. So he's saying, behind the scenes, I'm not sure if I'll be able to do what's absolutely necessary to help you guys this and the other. On the other hand, if everybody leaves, I'm sure that we'll be able to find out. That's all it took. Now, it didn't happen overnight, but it happened. Anthony is up the creek. And so his health collapses at that time, and he just crashes, and he goes to uh, Bermuda for a month. Right, to recover. He had, he had, I don't want to give you the, the uh, GI stuff, but he had a, a, a bad illnesses and so forth. And uh, the result is that he flees the country. John Foster told us that we came down with colon cancer. <laughs> I can't do that. I'm sure a lot of people curse him, you know. And he gets emergency surgery, emergency surgery right there in this whole Sonic campaign business. And it gains him another two and a half years of life. And Anthony Eden's absence, which takes place over four weeks, eight weeks, uh, Britain obfuscates. But nevertheless, over the course of November and December, Eisenhower very politely insists that they withdraw. Otherwise, there'll be no help for your economy and they'll crash. And the British eventually do. Britain and France had promised Israel they wouldn't do so. They would not leave Israel alone. But hey, things change. <laughs> right? 
and this is Europe. Eden, as it is, is defiant. He is unwilling to admit that he's wrong, ever. His policy was half-baked. Britain was simply an honest broker. Look at this speech he gives. He says, we are totally uh, right and honest in this whole matter. He's got a, a real politician's face.
they're nuclear research. They never use the word atom, of course. They're nuclear peaceful research, but it's, it's a compensation pass package because France felt guilty that they left Israel on the orders in 57. Right? It's amazing. Okay? And Tim in Paris was always the right guy at the right time, as I told you, the right time. He's always in Paris. This would help. <laughs> okay? Um, and so, uh, having pushed out Britain and France, it took him two months, November and December, but having pushed up 56, Eisenhower now turns to Ben-Gurion. New? <laughs> Ben-Gurion says, we will leave if Israel makes peace with us. Real peace. Then we're willing to withdraw and so on and so forth. I, just, I mean, if Egypt makes obviously, if we'll, we'll, we'll withdraw if Egypt makes peace with us, the real peace. I said, I would say, no, you'll leave that. <laughs> Nasser said, peace with Israel? Why should I make peace with Israel? They invented up. What did they deserve to have to do peace? The opposite. This is confirmed their essentially aggressive nature and how, how, how evil they are. Under pressure from Eisenhower, Israel withdraws partially and slowly over the course of November, December, but holds on to a line running from El Arish Sharm el which of course includes the Gaza Strip. You understand, no, they put the Israel held on to where I'm pointing here, right? Uh, not half, you know, the last quarter of it. So they, they, they let the Egyptians take over all this, the middle, and the part adjacent to Israel, let's put it that way, especially the part that has Sharm el Sheikh and Zabana, which controls the entry to the Gulf of Aqaba, the Gulf of Eilat, that's what they still held on to. Uh, now she doesn't have to do anything. He said, I was doing all my work for me. Uh, which was true. Now, Ben-Gurion then digs in his heel. And he says, we will not withdraw from the rest unless we get security guarantees. We want no more Fedayin raids, no more blockade of Iraq, etc. Dr. Amasol, who's the Secretary General of the United Nations, is so angry, somebody wants to benefit from aggression, comes a matter of principle to him, and says, there should be no reward from aggression. Israel must withdraw without anything. After it's all over, then we'll welcome to the situation. The king of Saudi Arabia, King Saud, he says, if it, America doesn't get the Israelis back to the old frontier, we'll close down your bases over here, and we'll make an oil crisis. Okay, this is the wrong guy. This is the, the, the father. But it doesn't matter. They, they, the, the, you, get, you get confused with Saud and Ibn Saud and all that, but there are such people. Anyway, the, the, fact, the fact is that um, the U.S. needed big Dharan. You know, remember, you, you've heard about that in the paper. The U.S. has gigantic air bases, which they need for security for Russia in uh, the Arabian Desert, besides the oil itself. And um, the king of Arabia said, like this, he says, why should we help America if you're not going to get Israel out of it? Um, Eisenhower said, like Israel, that's a pain. Right? We, 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 where do you guys come from? Ben Gurion said, without guarantees, we will not move. Eisenhower says, well, let's do sanctions and force you to move. Same thing with England. I'm not to lift a finger. America depends on the American aid. You can get along with that. You know that. Dollar says UJA. Don't have to even do that. Just make it that the UJA is not tax deductible. You cut down by two thirds at least, or more, the, uh, the amount of money that the American Jews send to Israel. America doesn't have to do a thing. You see? And the Dollar's not wrong about that. Meanwhile, Avi Van is on the American news all the time, swaying public opinion. He was Israel's secret weapon. He goes to CBS and NBC, you know, all the shows over and over again. And Avi Van, of course, is so eloquent. He said, we're ready to go. We really don't want to go back to Fed A.N. raids and we want to blockade. Why should we? Why does Don Hammarskjöld insist on this? Now, Israel has a position, too. Why is it necessary just to satisfy the ideas that the aggressors should not gain from anything that we should literally go back to a situation in which, what, you, you, you put the terrorist bases back in here and then start negotiating again? That doesn't make any sense. Um, Eisenhower is adamant, and he says, we have to do this, and um, 
I don't want to blockade Israel. I mean, I don't want to uh, attention Israel. Arrested, but if they won't leave, then this, if it's necessary to do so, they'll do so. Um, he can't do it. This is LBJ's finest hour. <laughs> okay? Uh, Johnson was the Senate Majority Leader. The, the Democrats had one vote majority. In those early years, it was one vote for Republicans, and the next time it was one vote for the Democrats. So it was like 48 to 47, something like that. And, uh, and Lyndon Johnson, I'm sure, I'm looking around, I think everybody here is old enough to remember what I'm talking about. Uh, he knew how to get the vote. And he tells Eisenhower, he says, like, he says, you do whatever you want. I'm telling you right now, this is a personal thing with me. There is no way under any circumstances that I will allow you to make any sanction against Israel. That's it. That's it. I got the votes to do it. And Eisenhower tries to reason him, and he says, I'll get the House as well as the Senate on, on, on my side. Dolan said, let's try the Republicans. The Republican leader in the Senate, the minority leader, Senator William Nolan of California, very interesting guy. Uh, he was the best friend of Joe McCarthy. He's an extreme right-wing Republican, but he's but you can't tell. See, people nod their heads. You don't know everything. Uh, American politics is more interesting than that. This guy, who was a, a super McCarthyite and anti-communist, all the rest of it, was a leading senator on civil rights, and he's also a leading senator for Israel. So you don't know. You see what I'm saying? We, we, the the, the uh, facile assignment of people to certain categories reminds me of like, the worst aspects of Shachanan, you know? It's, 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 it's in there. And so, no one tells Dalton, he says, I'm against this senator. I'm against this. You don't have any votes for this in the Senate. Okay? And so, Stymie, what does Eisenhower do? He turns to Abihel Silver. See, it's amazing. Okay? Now, Abihel Silver, of course, had been Mr. Zionism in America. Not only that, Abel Silver was a big mouth of the Republican Party, even though he always voted Democrat. <laughs> okay? Uh, again, you can't tell by facile uh, classifications. Okay? By the way, my best story, somebody here, maybe she's here tonight, two years ago, I spoke about Abel Silver. Somebody here came to me afterwards and said, my father was from Jew in Cleveland, and he was a big fan of Abel Silver. Always went to hear his, his Sabbath sermons. And uh, even though the was like he went in there, and I said, what do you do about Shabbos on the rest of it? Oh, no problem. The service is always on Sunday. It was real reform. <laughs> they didn't have services on Shabbos. It was a real, real, real reform. Anyway, uh, having said that, though, I can tell you right now that uh, when Eisenhower ran in 52, Truman, Shadarko, so I guess, any Jews that vote for that anti-Semite can go straight to hell. That's what Truman speaks. And uh, who said Eisenhower was anti-Semite? So Abel Silver made a whole speech over on the American community to say, yes, you can vote for Eisenhower, you can vote for whoever you want. But Eisenhower was not an anti-Semite. I know him. Okay? And uh, he's a regular American and all the way. Excuse me. Oops. Okay. I don't know. I guess it is. I can't afford to play with that. Um, because uh, he, you know this look he was in Dachau you understand 
I mean, it meant something to him. The Vajish says, I just, he says, I was an honest man. Uh, you and I think there's no politics. People care about their integrity. So my guys, I was it also. And to be validated by silver was very important. The reason I mention this is that uh, in, in, in crisis situations, it's very interesting. Eisenhower felt very uncomfortable talking to Ben-Gurion. He felt like a brick wall. But Abedhul Silver, he said he'll get the message to Ben-Gurion. Even though he didn't realize that Ben-Gurion didn't like Abedhul Silver because the Zionist Jewish politics but what else is new? Anyhow, um, Silver talks to Israel's influential friends in the Republican Party and in the Eisenhower administration. He speaks to Tom Dewey, who had been the Democratic candidate, uh, the Republican candidate for president in the 40s, and to Walter Beagle Smith, who, was the under, who just resigned as Undersecretary of State. He had been Eisenhower Chief of Staff during the Second World War. These are pro-Israel, big macho Republicans, and he's saying like this, he says, explain to us Israel's not in the role with this, and if you put in sanctions, it'll wreck the country, and the country will go down the drain. Take it easy over here. Still, it's not simple. Eisenhower will not yield on what he regards as a matter of principle, a matter of international law. You see, to Eisenhower, a breakdown of international law will recreate 1931. They say 1931. That was only 25 years before, when the Japanese took over Manchuria, which was against the law, and the League of Nations didn't do anything about it. And you know what happened? That showed everybody they can get away with it. Next thing, Hitler and Mussolini came along. Next thing you know, the whole world was engulfed in World War II. So if Israel is able to hold on to the territory simply because they conquered it, then who's to stop another country from doing the same thing tomorrow and the day after? I tell you again, I, know our families, I have to look at it from a global perspective. I can't do these little narrow-minded things. If only the world had put his foot down. Henry Simpson had been the Secretary of State in 1931. He said, that's how. If we stop Japan now, we'll stop World War II coming and the whole world will last and it didn't work. And he was right. So the American tradition in the State Department of American Diplomacy, which is not a bad tradition, is one in which says we have to stand for the maintenance of international law and that's why Bush went in uh, when, when Saddam Hussein invaded uh, Kuwait and things like this because the alternative is much worse. It's very far from a perfect world. I understand all the hypocrisy and all the rest of it. But consider the alternative, and Eisenhower's generation had lived through the alternative. And anyway, Ben-Gurion said like this. Ben-Gurion says to Eisenhower, what about Russia? You're not kicking them out of Hungary. What about international law over there? What? You're not doing anything about the tanks in Budapest. And Eisenhower says, what? Are you comparing yourself to the communists? Are you comparing yourself to the atheists? That's what he says to Ben-Gurion. Okay? And Eisenhower stymied by LBJ and by also he was founded by the sympathetic media and the sympathetic elite. I mean, here's the big rally that takes place right during the Sinai crisis when Eisenhower was threatening Israel. Here's Eleanor Roosevelt next to Moshe Dayan, and if you see been behind with John F. Kennedy, I mean, they holograms. Remember in, in Manhattan, everybody remember that? So, um, what's the big... Uh, yeah, right, he's dying. So, uh, what do you call it? The Israel's having huge rallies in which the leading members of the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant establishment are lining up in favor of Israel. I tell you again, it was a golden era. <laughs> it's the Abin Harris for the Jews. The uh, people saw it from Israel's angle, and Abin Eben is giving a speech over there, and uh, oh my goodness, you know, that, that's the way the American public was doing it. Ed Murrow was the number one uh, journalist at that time. He was American, someone they remembered us from the Blitz. Here's Ed Murrow going to visit Victoria to get his take in the thing. <laughs> what do you think is, is the right way for you to go? <laughs> what do you think Victoria's going to give you a, a, uh, an even handed answer? That's where the American public was. So Eisenhower takes his case to the American people in a remarkable and blunt television speech. Okay? Uh, you can see the words over there. I won't take the time to read it all, um, but, but, uh, but it's, it's quite powerful. 
and, 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 he, and he puts it, uh, lays it on line, and he says, listen, I don't want to hurt Israel, but on the other hand, you can't let them get away with it. And as he said, we're not going to apply to Israel the same uh, 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 standards that you would do to the atheist despots of Russia. Okay? This is supposed to be a democratic country. This is supposed to be a country that regards itself as a member of the free world. So you can't just unilaterally go and break the law as the word take it with somebody else's territory and expect the United States of America to go along with it. It's not going to happen. And therefore, I'm pushing Israel. I'm asking the American people to back me over here um, on this because it's a matter of principle. Now, you have to understand, I have tremendous charisma and tremendous authority. I want to tell you, I didn't have the whole speech over there. Only in... Only he could get away with this. You know, Eisenhower was the only guy in the 20th century who was elected president of the United States who was bald. Okay? There many have written on that. And that means, uh, of course, Stevenson was too. But nevertheless, uh, it's something. He gives a speech and he says like this. He says, my fellow Americans, I have a cold tonight, so I may have to blow my nose and cough a few times. I beg your pardon beforehand. Can you imagine uh, in this meeting age, somebody with this? He doesn't give a darn. You understand? He says, I have nothing to prove. I won World War II. You elected me and re-elected me. I, you know, I, I, I can say it the way I see it. It's, it's remarkable. And he says, like this, look, you've got to stand behind me, because otherwise if, if Israel gets away with this, the whole thing breaks down. That's what it is. And so the result is that Abba even says to the Ben-Gurion, says to the Pilgrim, that you're pushing ice too far. You make a big mistake. Okay? Don't do this. You know, if he blows up, you're in big trouble. He's a nice guy, but you're going too far. Ben-Gurion says to Avi Ibn and Golda Meir, then, okay, then go get the best deal you can get. And here you have Golda Meir, uh, who is a, pri- a foreign minister, like the minister of foreign affairs. She goes to Washington over there, and Golda Meir and Avi Ibn try to nail down Dulles, and they say, you know, uh, let's take a look at the next thing over here. Now that's a lie. That's one of the things you can't believe in the news. Dulles was a Wall Street lawyer, very slippery character if he wanted to be, and his his client right now is the United States of America. And what Ben Gurion and Golden Air and Albie Ben wanted Dulles to do was to sort of sign on the dotted line to guarantee certain basic Israeli demands. Number one, no more terrorists, no more fitting in in the Gaza Strip. Number two, no blockade of, uh, of a lot. If you get Egypt to agree with this, we withdraw. Not just that the Dulles were not withdrawing, no way. Right? Like I say, why should I? Dulles says to Hammershaw, how about if the United Nations occupies the Gaza Strip? So I think of like a lawyer. I got this client over here, and this client over here. Can we come up with something in the middle? How about if the Egyptian army doesn't take over the Gaza Strip again? But how about if Israel gets out anyway, and the UN sends a peacekeeping force over there, an army over there, to do, to do that? Hammershaw says, what does that mean? Will Egypt approve? Nasser said, well, we will not formally approve, but we'll informally declare anything to get the Jews out of there. You see? And uh, Dulles says to Dr. Hammershaw, will the United Nations take over Sharm el-Sheikh? So the Egyptians won't be there, but they'll be at the, at the gateway to the, uh, to the entrance of the Gulf of Aqaba. And uh, once again, uh, Hammershaw says to Nasser, do you agree? I know. I, I won't say I agree, but, uh, you know, like, in other words, yes. Okay? And, uh, you know, if you, if you don't cause me to say anything, so I'll agree. This is a real good lawyer deal. You understand? He's trying to make everybody happy. Golda Meir says, 
Nasser's not signing anything. He's not committing himself to anything. This is a temporary trick. After a while, he will reoccupy everything, and we, be, we will be back to square one. Which, by the way, did happen in 1960. You know, it happened 10 years later. But right now, Dolan says to Golda Meir, look, the perfect is the enemy of the good. What? Golda says, well, what will the U.S. do if Nasser reoccupies? Dolan says, we can't guarantee that. But we can guarantee, I can't guarantee what, what Nasser will do. I can guarantee what the U.S. will do. No, let me rephrase that. We can't guarantee what the U.S. will do, but we can assure you. There's <laughs> a lawyer. What the U.S. will do. Which is, we will regard the Gulf of Aqaba as international waters which may not be blockaded. Golda says, does that mean, you understand, though, she's trying to have it out. Does that mean that if not the blockade in the future, you'll break the blockade, run ships through there? Dolan says, we cannot guarantee that we'll go to war. That's up to Congress. Then Avi Ben says, well, again, here's a good idea. Let's make a defense treaty with the United States, like NATO, which commits the United States to break the blockade. And Dolan says, uh, no. <laughs> Dolan says, look, after all, you know, you know what I'm saying? Those, all these sessions go back and forth and forth and back. And Dolan says, look, it boils down to this. You've got to pull out. There's no two ways about it. If you pull out now, you will have the sympathy of America and the Western world. If you do not, relations will sour big time. Ike is not foolish. Consider, American sympathy is really your most important asset. I repeat, American sympathy, not formal alliance. You may not like that, but that is really the best Israel can ask for. Such are the facts of your life. So, as your friend, your attorney, as it were, take this deal. Pull out, and America will be your friend, though we will never be your formal ally. Abu Ibn says to Ben-Gurion, this is the best deal possible, take it. Ben-Gurion says to Eshkol, who is the finance minister, how long can we hold out if America cuts off the money? Eshkol says, in a few weeks, maybe. <laughs> Ben-Gurion says, okay, in that case, <laughs> get the best deal you can, and then we'll pull out. Dulles says, we promise that we don't formally commit to the UN occupying Sinai and Gaza, and the UN running the Gaza Strip, and to sending ships through, we will send ships through to a lot, and agreeing that it's an international waterway. And that's the most we're prepared to do. In March 1957, uh, Israel pulled out reluctantly. It was wrong everything. Eisenhower said, I'm happy that you decided to listen. You will not regret this. Ben-Gurion says, oh, we won't regret this? Does that mean you'll sell us weapons? You'll make a NATO treaty with us? Uh, no. <laughs> Nasser, meanwhile, says, I never agreed to any of these dollars in Abraham deals. In spite of what I just said, Nasser does not kick the UN out of Sinai and the Gaza Strip, though he reserves the right to do so. He's not interested in starting a war either again, although publicly he is, of course. On the other hand, he does take control of the Gaza Strip. So, Ben-Gurion has been promised that the UN will run the Gaza Strip, not Egypt. Nasser sends in, but it's Egyptian police not the Egyptian army. So the Egyptian police from 57 to 67 are running the Gaza Strip, which is a very unusual type of situation. Nevertheless, although he said he wouldn't, Nasser did respect the agreement until May of 67, as we know. This resulted in Israeli gains. No Sedegan bases in Gaza. Consider that. Okay? Um, thus, a relatively quiet, I emphasize, relatively quiet Israeli-Egyptian border for the next 10 years. Unlike 52 to 56, which I've described to you in detail, from 57 to 67, it's one or two a year, which is pretty good. That's, you know, that's as good as it gets. You understand? Um, it's, it's one or two or three a year, where it used to be one or two or three a day or a week. Um, so 
the border got a lot quieter on, as far as that's concerned. Um, uh, they got a, also a demilitarized Sinai Peninsula, because part of the understanding was this was when set up uh, large military uh, um, things in, in the Sinai, that, that's left to the United Nations. And so, although Nazis didn't realize it, probably been going either, Israel gained something invaluable, which was a tripwire. Uh, this is what he used in 67. Consider, here is the Egyptian army where I'm pointing over here, behind the Suez Canal. Here's Israel, of course. It's impossible for Egypt to make a, a surprise attack, but first, the Egyptian army has to go in and take over the Sinai Peninsula, which is a logistic business, takes a couple weeks. So automatically, any time Egypt wants to do anything against Israel, it's going to be with a, 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 a long lead time for Israel to find out about it. That's the sign that, it, that, that Egypt is getting serious about war. That is what happened in May of 57. Right? That he went in at 67. And he went in and, and, and didn't go out, and of course, you know, it led to the, the Six Day War. I can tell you that there was a, a mistake in um, 59. We'll do this next year. The famous uh, mishap where uh, the Egyptian army went into the uh, uh, Sinai Desert in 59. And all visitors went to a panic, and, and, and an officer, Mayor Zorea, and, and the uh, high command ordered a, a full Israeli mobilization, and Nasser said, what happened? It was a screw-up in communications, and he immediately sent a message to Ben-Gurion uh, through, uh, I forget which intermediary, it's like, if this was a mistake, we're pulling out of here. And that's what happened, and both sides pulled out. So I'm trying to tell you, although nobody planned it, it turned out to be something, a valuable defense tool, I would say even for both sides, but certainly for Israel both far away from each other, even though you understand that Egypt still owned the Sinai Peninsula, and Egypt still formally controlled the Gaza Strip, but not really. And so Israel could look at this as, as, uh, as real gain, and also an unblockaded Eilat. Now again, Nasser said the blockade is still on, but his army, on purpose, is not in Sharm el-Sheikh, and nobody's enforcing it, and Israel's going in and out. That's what happened. And also, don't forget the extra little bonus over there, A-bomb. <laughs> Israel got a bunch of of uh, goodies, in other words, out of the, the Sinai campaign, from the Israeli point of view. And, and finally, uh, I would say, Israel got tremendous military prestige. Okay? Now, Israel always sells itself on the ben time as a leading world of peaceful matters, scientific uh, uh, research, and the social advance, and all which is true, I'm not taking that away, but the fact of the matter is, Israel got real prestige after 56, because everybody's like, yes, ooh, they want a war, you know, they're, they're, they're tough. Uh, Israel's amazing. What's really remarkable is Israel got tremendous prestige um, in the third world, which should really not be in favor of Israel for practicing naked aggression against Egypt. Here is um, some of the main leaders. Israel too was gained from the war. It had at the time being removed the Egyptian threat from its borders and showed the world it was a part of the event.
things that are the same for even in the third world. Look over here. This was a mayor with the leaders of Kenya, uh, Jomo Kenyatta and uh, Tamavoya. These are famous people from yesteryear. And, uh, seminal figures in the African independence movement. And, uh, they're very interested in Israel. They say publicly because of Israel's social development and the kibbutzim and all that sort of thing. But behind the closed doors, that has to win the fire campaign. <laughs> what do you think? What do you plan? Because that's how countries are. And, uh, by the way, as a result of this, so, so, uh, Golda Meir is able to launch all these programs in Kenya, uh, part of which is that they, uh, do all these scholarships to help African students go around the world. One of them is a guy named Barack Obama Sr., okay, who ends up, that's him, eventually comes to America and marries this, uh, girl over here, who is the children of the President of the United States. So, uh, you know, let's put it this way. If you like conspiracy theories, and I know in the Middle East they love conspiracy theories, you have to understand. The entire election of Barack Obama is dated back from the Tanya campaign, where as a result of Israel got his entry into the African independence movement and used that to start a uh, education uh, fund in order to get Barack Obama senior. And, uh, and, if you, and, and if you laugh at it, I get it, but you know and I know, I can guarantee you that some website somewhere Somebody's pushing this kind of stuff, and millions of people are believing it. It's clear today is it them that Barack Obama Jr., the President of the United States, a Zionist plant from long ago. Look how clever the Israelis are. Okay. <laughs> on the other hand, all right. On the other hand, uh, Nasser emerged with glory. Okay, let's take a look at this. Yeah, man. And, uh, and, it, and they did. 
And the only thing is, in the long run, the structure was too, was too wobbly. In uh, 67, um, but to tell you the truth, you know, he just made a mistake, Nasser, in May of 67. He did not have to go this route, and uh, he made a series of, of errors. If he would have been a little more cautious and so forth, um, it wouldn't have happened. And uh, the, the, the basic idea of the structure was not a bad one, even from Israel's point of view. Look, consider comparing it to today. At that time, the, the Gaza Strip was still in the Gaza Strip, and it's full of Arabs and hate Israel and the rest of it. They weren't shooting at Israel. You didn't have Hamas. You didn't have the Fatah. You didn't have any of that kind of stuff. You had uh, a civil administration by Egypt. The United Nations controlled the, the, the frontier areas. They wouldn't allow anybody to shoot missiles into Israel. I mean, it's as good as it gets. Okay? It doesn't get better than that. So, even though people make fun of John Foster Dulles, and he says, an anti-Semite and all the rest of it, it's not really true. He put together a deal that, that kind of worked, but the structure was too wobbly. Israel expects and hopes that as a result of their concessions, they'll get better treatment from the U.S. during the second Eisenhower administration. Would they? So, well, which, which, which way will it go? Okay? Um, that is something, of course, we'll have to explore next year. Uh, here's Eisenhower meeting with the Muslim Brotherhood <laughs> in the second administration, which that time was considered a very positive anti-communist organization. Um, history is very interesting in its permutations. So as I say, I'll leave the future for the future. Good night, sir. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.